Hi, we are Joanna and Bracha, two Jewish moms with nine children between us and a wealth of experience. Through our podcast, we want to empower and connect Jewish women to promote well-being and explore solutions to life's challenges with wisdom and wit. In this space, we are creating an atmosphere of empowerment, positivity, encouragement and acceptance, empathy, sharing, learning and friendship for women across the spectrum. Our next podcast guest, Rivka Zeman, did her first degree in computer science, worked in IT for an investment bank and subsequently qualified as a teacher. After taking around 10 years out of her career to fully devote herself to raising her five children, she feels passionately about supporting other parents on their journey. Rivka loves studying, learning and sharing parenting wisdom. Her material is profoundly influenced by what she has learned from Rabbi Leib Kellerman. Rivka sent us this quote by Sarah Hannah Radcliffe, which ties in nicely. When you don't do anything for yourself, your family doesn't love you more, your own body doesn't love you more, and your heart certainly doesn't love you more. Treat yourself well, you'll have better results. We hope you enjoy our interview with Rivka on the topic of parenting. We are confident that there'll be wisdom that everyone can take away from it. Hi Rivka, welcome to our podcast. Um, so tell us, you've got five kids, you teach parenting classes. Um, can you tell us a bit about your approach? Sure. So my approach isn't really mine. It's almost entirely based on classes that I was taught by Rabbi Leib Kalaman around 20 years ago in Jerusalem. He learned the methods from his rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Volby, who learned it from his rabbi, Rabbi Rachel Lubavitz who learned it from his rabbi, Rabbi Strauss, and on and on and on, all the way back to Mount Sinai. Um, it's a beautiful approach full of the depth of Torah with insight and it encourages self-awareness and self-growth. Amazing. Yeah, we can both vouch for it. We've been to your classes. Yes. Yeah, very, very interesting. So I've done a few parenting courses and I really enjoyed your course. I just found it really wise and real. Why did this parenting course style resonate with you in particular? So there's a few reasons. Firstly, I think because it's Torah-based. So we're told that God looked into the Torah and created the world, meaning that the Torah is a spiritual reality behind the universe that we live in. And therefore, the way I see it is that if we could only access it, all the answers to all our difficulties must be there because that is really the reality. Mm. Um, so, I mean, from my perspective, I'm given a choice between a parenting approach that's human-based and one that's God-based. I'm going to take the one that comes from God. Um, so that's my first reason. But um, beyond that, just to give you a bit more of an idea, um, it's a child-centered approach. So it's really quite unselfish. It's quite, it can therefore be quite demanding on ourselves, but it rings true because you want to be providing for your, your kids. The kids are the vulnerable ones. We as adults need to kind of be responsible. Um, and also, it, the, one of the ideas that comes through again and again and again in this course is that if you want to be a good parent, be a good person. It's about your growth and the better a person you are, the better a parent you're going to be. Lastly, one more point which I find really key, which really, really resonates with me and I think with lots of other people, is that if you want to impact anyone, it's always going to be based on the strength of your relationship. So we all know this because if you think about people who impacted you in your life, for example, teachers, parents, role models, if you loved them, admired them, adored them, you would just want to do whatever they do. 
And conversely, if you didn't like them, dislike their style, or they upset you repeatedly and to the point of, I don't want to be anything like them, then you're going to run away from everything they represent. So parenting is all about relationship in this in this course that I do. And anything that threatens relationship is poison. These ideas just resonate so powerfully with me, and I hope with other women too. Um, and those are some of the things that really um, turn me on about this method. I've never asked you this question, but have you done other parenting courses or did you just read up about different or you just went straight to this one? Because I also know you learnt it when you were single. You didn't have kids at the time of learning this style. Absolutely. So the first, when I first heard about this when I was 18 and, and even then it made a huge impression on me. I think so many of the insights are just ring so true on such a deep level. Um, I have heard, I have gone to another parenting course. It was quite a short course. It was about six weeks. It was excellent. And it fitted in with a lot of the stuff I knew. Um, I've gone to one-off classes here and there, but mostly the other material that I've come across has been through reading, like you, like you said. Um, and it's not, everything's useful. All ideas are useful. But um, often I found that we're looking at a list of many, many different approaches for how to deal with this, how to deal with that, how to deal with the other. Um, what Robert Kellerman taught me, and the, the approach that I teach, is much more about understanding your individual child and empowering in terms of only you can really understand who that child is. And that a list of techniques or approaches um, ways of responding is as endless as our individual uniqueness and you are never ever going to be able to encompass all of those in any book or any course and therefore I just find this more empowering than anything else that I've come across. That concept of inner child like mm-hmm. going back to like that is quite a hard because sometimes you have to, people have to heal their inner child like because maybe people didn't have a good do you feel like that, that is part of the course I've never really asked you this question like, do you feel that you have to, I suppose you can't fast because you have children, but like, is it, is it, can, is there a way of doing that or you don't know? It sounds like what you're asking about is how can you get yourself to a place where you're strong enough to be the good parent that you want to be? Because without having it yourself and without being somewhat independent and capable, then you can't be the great parent that you want to be. And I think the answer is that, you know, we have to kind of let go and, and believe that God put us here. If he gave us kids, then we have that capability. And it may be an ongoing effort and we're not always going to get it right. And being imperfect is absolutely part of what I teach and how to cope with one's own imperfections along the road and not expecting ourselves to be perfect. And at, at the same time, while we're doing that, we're creating a model for our children of how to deal with their own imperfections. And no one is ever perfect. But hopefully, as we progress through our parenting journey, we're going to find ways of strengthening ourselves and becoming that parent that we do want to be. Do you think this approach is universal? Like if someone wasn't Jewish and they had this approach, like it would be a universal approach? Absolutely. Absolutely. So how has this material, this parenting style, impacted your family life? So I really have been able to feel empowered. Um, I feel very grateful to Hashem that he gave me, he gave us sound principles to to base our actions upon. 
when I make mistakes, which is very often, then there are the Torah, there's the Torah idea of teshuvah, of coming back to who you want to be, of being able to apologize and praying for God to remove the, the damage that I might have created. Um, and I can then forgive myself and move on. The honest truth is that without this approach, I dread to think where I would be and where my family would be. It has literally saved me. Um, I don't think that there's anyone out there really who's a naturally good parent. Some people may have better starting points than others, but if you want to be a great parent, it's going to take a huge amount of work. And I'm not saying I'm there yet, not at all. It's an ongoing lifetime effort, but with the right tools, we can get there. So do you think for some parents it's it's easier just to be, for some people it's easier to be a good parent and to just do what's best for their child and it's harder for other people. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, everyone, there's so much context in everyone's lives and their childhood experiences and their situation, their family situation, what kind of kids they have. I mean, some people just seem to have kids that are just plain sailing and yeah. no problems. and Angelic. Just and they're not necessarily they challenged. I mean, I meet people who... You know, I talk to them and I say I do parenting courses and they have kids and they don't ask anything and they don't, it's not, questions don't come up for them because mm. their kids and their parenting journey is fairly straightforward. So absolutely people are going, some people are going to struggle. I mean, some you have single parents, it's going to be so much harder for them. Mm. Um, you have parents who may have had mental health issues or children with mental health issues. And absolutely the, the variety is going to be absolutely vast. Um, but I think what I find really interesting here is that very often we tend to look at other people and think that they have it a certain way, mm. either easy or hard, or that they started off with this beautiful medot or whatever. And the truth is, you never really know, because the kind of person that someone is when they're with a group of adults or when they're presenting or giving a class, or, you know, you might think that I'm a certain type of mother and I don't lose my temper or either, either or the other. You don't know who I am unless you're sitting in my house with just me and my kids, and you're never going to do that because whenever you're there, I'm going to be on my guard. Mm. So you don't actually really, really know. And we just have to kind of sit with ourselves and believe that God gave us what he gave us for a purpose and try and just try our best and wreck I think it's really, really important to give ourselves as mothers credit for everything we do because so many mums that I meet just are so hard on themselves and don't recognise all that they're doing. And I so often say to people, you know, do you realise how much you're going through? The fact that you even gave the kids breakfast and got them out to school is mammoth. You know, write down a list of everything you had to do to get to that point yeah. and, how, and to stay sane. And, and I think it's just really important to keep a perspective, maybe some, for some parents who might be struggling, to keep a diary and notice the positive things that you do and stop beating yourself up over the negative. And that's also what we want to be doing with our kids. Notice the positive they're doing and not beat them up over the negative. Mm. If we can do it with ourselves, we're going to be able to do it better with our kids. What a, a great nice, idea. Yeah, what I a love nice that. idea to write a diary. Yeah, because everyone's on their own journey. Everyone's got their own challenges. It's Yeah, it's very individual. 
So now we're going to just talk about general topics, and the first topic is bedtime. Do you have any tips or tools or any advice about bedtime? I suppose for younger kids, more at this moment. Sure. So if I'm going to prioritise bedtime, it means that firstly my kind of perspective and my attitude towards it and the way I organise my life is going to be that I allocate plenty of time for it. Um, it's, it can be a great opportunity to... Um, wind down with the kids and to enjoy them. What can often happen to most of us, myself included, is that we're so drained from the whole day um, that by the time we get to bedtime, we just want the kids in bed and out of the way so that I can get on with my life. Mm. But it's it's hard, but it's really so desperately important because very often when the kid actually lies down in bed and the lights go dim is when they're actually ready to finally talk about things that really bother them. And so many times it's happened with me again and again and again. My kid comes home from school, they sit down, they eat supper, I'm there, I'm waiting. Come on, tell me what happened, tell me what happened. Nothing's coming. They're not interested. They get annoyed if I ask them too many questions. Leave me alone, I just want to relax. Finally, they're in bed, and then it all starts coming out. Mm-hmm. And if at that point I can find within myself the patience um, and the, the space to really give them that attention and that love and to really hear them out in a totally non-judgmental way, then I build a relationship very powerfully and I ease them into their nighttime routine in a beautiful way. Um, you'll, I think what we'll also find is that if we're prepared to give that devoted, often one-on-one attention, even if it's just for five, ten minutes before they go to sleep, um, and they really feel cherished and loved and hugged and just adored, then the transition to sleep can, can go much more easily. But I have to look after myself and be in a good place in order to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. What happens if your kids share a room? Yeah. Does it, does it work? So, you, yeah, you can still do it. I mean, you you can still lie down in each one with their bed or sit next to their bed and stroke them and hug them. And as they get used to it, they see that that is their time. I mean, I, ha- I have an issue that my five-year-old, when I when I try to give my nine-year-old the, the focus, delightful attention, my five-year-old climbs on my back yeah. and wants to pull me off and all of that. That sounds so, really familiar. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, but we can be clever. We can find ways of managing it. Um, we can we can maybe have the focus time a little bit earlier or we can um, get another child to occupy a five-year-old or, you know, we can be creative with that. Um, and as long as the child feels that they're getting, they are really getting our attention, then that's okay if there's another kid in the room. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you might take one child out of the room. Um, yeah, I think there are lots of ways of doing it. As With many things, just we can be creative. Mm-hmm. Stagger bedtime? So yeah, I definitely try to stagger bedtime so that we have the time with each child. Absolutely. And it's, it's really a time for connecting, you're saying, rather than just getting them to sleep. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. Yeah. What about the kids who get up in the night a few times? I know that we've struggled with this. It's really, really tough and draining when they get up in the night. Um, I guess it sounds to me like, I mean, my issue with it is I, I need my sleep. I need to sleep through the night. So, I mean, I'm not talking about small babies here because small babies really need the love and attention during the night. But once a child is old enough, they should be sleeping through the night, then um, I think the most effective method is to 
try not to let them sleep in your bed. Um, I mean, if you if it works for you for them to sleep in your bed, that's wonderful, that's gorgeous. But for many people, including myself, it doesn't. So what I find is I need to be really disciplined. I need to lock my bedroom door so that I wake up when they want to come in my room and they bang on the door. And I had it last night and both of my girls came in and they have bad dreams. So fine if you want to give them a hug, but you better get out of your bed and make sure they get back into their own bed because otherwise the cycle just becomes self-reinforcing. Mm-hmm. So you can do it with love and you can do it with kindness, but you can also be firm and you know, pick them up and back in. And as long as you keep putting them back in their bed, eventually they will learn to sleep through in their own bed. But you've got to be disciplined. That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. Struggle to learn. I, I actually bought a bed that I could sleep next to them. <laughs> what if they start off sleeping in your bed? One of mine will only be able to fall asleep in our bed. And I'm just waiting for the age where my husband, yeah, he'll be too big for my husband to carry him into his bed. <laughs> we have to get him out of that. You can train you can train kids for anything. You mm. actually can. It's just you have to be consistent. And it's hard, but you have to be consistent. And you can offer reward charts, you can offer incentives. Sometimes they don't work. You know, my third rule is quite bright and I'll say, Well, if you do this, you'll get that. And she's like, Well, I don't want that. I want this. <laughs> so it doesn't always work, but if you're firm and consistent and keep going, then eventually you will be able to train them. Um, okay, I hope so. <laughs> What's your approach to reward and punishment? Okay, so um, I'll say with rewards, go all out on rewards um, and incentives. Just be careful that when you are setting up an incentive system, it's something the child's not doing already and it's not too easy for them. You've got to pitch it at the right level. So if you reward something for, reward a kid for something that's too easy for them, um, then what happens is you just end up giving them loads and loads and loads of rewards. Um, and you may end up um, over, you may end up overdoing it, and that they come under an expectation of always getting. So yeah. you want to you want to be really careful how you pitch it. And then as soon as you feel that the behaviour that you want to encourage is entrenched, then you stop. So once it's becoming a habit to them, you don't reward it anymore, and you don't have to apologise. You make it clear that's okay. You're managing this now. I don't need to reward you anymore. Um, and it doesn't have to be ongoing. You might use rewards here and there. You might not um, use them so often. Or you might use them very regularly. If you have a child who struggles with a lot of things or you're struggling with a lot of things with them, it may be an ongoing thing. But you've kind of got to apply your judgment of how and when. Mm. Does that answer the rewards? Um, I think so. I mean, I'm thinking of my own personal scenario. We have a system where um, one of my kids gets points for doing certain things that, that are maybe a little bit above his level that are challenging for him. Um, and he then we add up those points and he gets a prize, but he is sort of starting to play the system. And I can imagine a scenario where he might even, if I say to him, okay, you're doing X now on your own, I'm going to take that off the list. He might say, well, I'm going to stop doing it now. You know, yeah. so what happens if they st- they start to play the system and ask for the rewards and things like that? So I don't, I think I've got, any, anyone who wants to offer um, advice always has to be careful not to offer hard and fast rules. So mm-hmm. I'm going suge- to make some ideas and some suggestions and see how they sit with you. Um, it, my inclination is in that scenario to, to kind of remove the rewards completely because because of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And my inclination would be to go away from actual material rewards because 
it could be they could be overused and to backtrack and go towards giving affection attention verbal praise mm. um, and copious amounts of those things and extra parental time mm. so playing a game or, you know and to and see how that goes and then maybe to introduce the material rewards as and when you feel you really need it as an extra tool but not as much as you have been doing. Mm. Is that helpful? It does help, yeah. I mean, so even if you place the system then, it's only positive because we're just exactly. getting more connecting time together. Exactly. So, yeah, that's only a good thing. Okay, yeah. I hear that. And and what about punishment? Okay, so, so punishment is an interesting one because um, what I generally find is that people always want to hear about punishment. It's kind of the first thing that people want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And parents obsess over punishment as, a, as if it represents the crux of all their parenting, everything. But actually what I learned was that punishment is not, um, in the moment of misbehavior, a child is not educatable. In just the same way as when I'm stressed or something's difficult for me, no one can actually give me advice or solutions or criticism because I'm not open to receiving it at all. So similarly, when a child misbehaves, generally they know they've done something wrong and you're trying to teach them anything in that moment is pretty futile. Mm. So in the moment of misbehavior, our goal is just to end the misbehavior in as gentle a way as possible with as little damage to our relationship with our children as possible. Punishment um, in English is a word that conjures up, for me at least, the idea of making someone suffer for something they've done wrong. The Hebrew word for punishment is actually um, onesh, which comes from ayin nash, which means um, the eye um, should see the mistake. So really, the true Torah perspective on punishment is that it's just to alert someone to the fact that they've done a mistake so that they can correct it. Um, and very often the amount of alert that is needed is very, very low. Um, my approach really with punishment is that, you know, if someone does something wrong, let them know it's wrong, try to stop it. And then later on, if you need to discuss it, if there's some value or some behavior that needs to be corrected, have a talk with them about it. If they're at the age, you can talk about it. If they're too young, then you need to teach them through stories. Um, examples of your own life and role modeling but actually um, the kind of punishment you know sitting in the corner or on the step and all that kind of stuff um, I really barely ever use there is there is one thing that I do use a Torah kind of timeout where if a child is repeatedly misbehaving and you absolutely have tried all your creative methods of distraction avoiding the situation um, bringing them into something different, um, sympathising with them and everything, and there's no other solution, then they need to be removed from the situation because they're obviously too stressed to be able to deal with themselves. But it has to come from a place of love. It has to come from a kind of an arm around the child's shoulder, a whisper in their ear, hey, how can I help you? And right now, I feel like you're stressed. Come on, come with me. I'll take you out of the room. Let's listen to some music in the other room. Let's have a snack. Let's and come back and join everyone else when you're ready, but not as a, I've had enough of you, get out of my face. That's not what we, what we want to be doing. And I'm not saying I haven't made mistakes and as every parent got to a point of desperation, 
picked up the child, moved them away, shouted at them. Of course we all do this, but we have to know where our ideals lie mm. and what we're kind of reaching for. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, that was a big takeaway for me, actually, from, from the course that I did with you, of like that moment of stress, of misbehavior or whatever, of tiredness, is not the teaching moment. I, I often think about that. Do you think older children is different? Is this like an approach you would use from... Like one to like, what age do you think? I do children? think older children are different, but in the way that, so as so everything I've just said, um, pretty much applies across the board. Um, the only thing I would say is that as you would get into teenager teenagehood, kids are more sensitive, and you've got to be more careful. You've got to be like crazy careful because their self esteem is so fragile. They're experiencing so much change, there's so much flux in their lives. And you have to be there for them. You have to be their anchor because they kind of feel like they've lost their own inner anchor. So, it, yeah, it may feel harder because they may be trying out more different, more things and their behaviour may be seen to you much worse. But their behaviour is probably just a function of their struggles and their difficulties. Do you think it's okay for an older child, um, not exactly at the time, but like a few minutes later to say, I wasn't. I was upset with that behaviour. Not like tell them off, but state that you were. What do you think about that? Like state that you were unhappy with that behaviour. I think it's generally fine. Like when when someone misbehaves, to say that's not okay, and then or okay. that you shouldn't be doing that. And it's important because you don't want them to think that it's okay and you accept it and you understand it and whatever they do, you you empathise. It's kind of a one line to show that it's not okay. But you don't need to go on. Okay. Okay, so now it's all about screen time. What's your opinion about screen time? Do you have an opinion about it? <laughs> I think it's a really difficult issue and so many parents talk about their struggles with their children and their kids' phones and the social pressure and all of this stuff. Um, it's really, really tough. It really is. Um and I think what I'm going to say is not going to be news to most people. I think the problem is for a lot of parents how to implement it. Um, I mean, the, the idea is Judaism is not a religion. It's a relationship. Um, relationship with God, relationship with other people, relationship with myself. The irony is that phones and screens were made to increase connectivity. And very often they end up doing exactly the opposite. Yeah. Screens don't generally enhance relationships, and we know that we all know huge risks of substituting online relationships for genuine authenticity. I think what's what's really important, what we can control, is being role models for this. So, do I have self control to turn my phone off when my kid walks in the room? Do I shut my computer down and give them my full attention, or when any other person walks into the room? You know, are real people more important to me than? what's going on online, so I can role model it. And I have to say, I have met several very impressive parents who have put limits on their kids, quite intense limits, but when they started from the moment their kid got their phone, they're able to carry it through, at least so far with the parents that I know. Um, so one parent that I met, phones stay downstairs. Phones never, ever go upstairs. I thought that was very, very impressive. That means the kid's not texting in the middle of the night. They're not, you know, watching things in the middle of the night. They're not wreaking their sleep, and they're not putting themselves in danger of things going on in the night. Um, and people, a lot of people have used filters. Um, 
it's hard. It's really hard. I think parents need a community of parents who have the same focus to work together um, yeah. on this one, really. It's kind of like a double-edged sword. Like, I once had a conversation with a mother, and she was so, like, there are some parents who also maybe don't give smartphones, and she was, like, so kind of strong about how, you know, every kid kind of needs a smartphone or they feel alienated. Like, it's kind of a double, like, if you don't give them, depending on your social circles and cultural beliefs, but, like, if you don't give them a phone and they're kind of isolated, it's it's kind of, it's a real double-edged tool for parents because if they don't, then the kids kind of get very upset. If they do, then there's a whole other thing going on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, and there's huge... lots of people with different opinions about it. Yeah. Right. There's a huge social pressure, I think, and you can't, how can you alienate your kid from a social environment? I mean, it just feels really scary to do that. But I was thinking about this last night, and I was thinking, you know, um, there are laws around cars. You know, someone's not allowed to drive a car till they're 17. It's a very powerful thing. And and really, there should probably be laws around things like this because it's seriously dangerous. Yeah. But, I think there are laws. Facebook, yes, Instagram, no one really keeps... Like, yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. There, like, there are certain protective <laughs> things going on. My clever daughter looks it up. WhatsApp <laughs> is from 12. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's at the discretion of the parent. Yeah. yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah, it really is. It's really, really hard. So can you suggest some ways to occupy challenging or energetic children um, with a view on mindset for the parent as well as strategies? Yeah. So... I think it's, our mindset is super, super important. Um, and there's a few different things to think about. So there's what's going on in our minds and how we speak as well. And then I'll talk about what we can actually do. So it's really important, especially with a challenging child, to notice the strengths that they bring. So very often it's the challenge itself that come, that when you flip it around is also a strength. So for example, Sometimes a kid might come across as very, very stubborn, but actually that stubbornness can translate into a focus mm. and a strength of being able to apply themselves to something very, very strongly. Um, and that's an amazing thing. Um, oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, and, and for example, something like ADHD. I mean, kids with ADHD struggle so much in schools, but when you see adults who've managed somehow got through the system even not managed you know mucked up the whole way through school and years and years later have become these phenomenal people devoted their creativity and their energy to creating charities to running um you know empires that are there to do good for other people it's it's mind-blowing what they can achieve as parents it's a huge challenge to keep our sights there and not on the current struggle we have to be able to see our children with a long-term perspective as kids who have tremendous potential um, and that is going to take us through the struggle that's going on right now um, so we have to kind of practice practice thinking differently and highlighting those kinds of ideas for ourselves and then we have to be careful how we speak so we do need to talk about the things that we're struggling with but never ever ever in front of the kid and be careful what language we use and, you know, not to label a child because it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, 
You can also use your language to encourage a child and to balloon the things that they do correctly. So, for example, if you've got a kid who likes to be doing and they make a cake, they help make a cake for Shabbos. So you don't just say, oh, so-and-so made the cake for Shabbos, it's so nice. You can, you can literally blow it up. You can say, you know, I was so tired. In a genuine way, I'm not saying that you should pretend. It's got to be genuine because otherwise the kid will smell it and it will just it will just be horrible for them. But you can say, you know, I was so tired on Friday and so and so is coming for Shabbos and they really love this cake and I really wanted to make it, but I just needed to flop. And so, you know, um, Josh made the cake and then he realised we didn't have the ingredients. So he even went to the neighbours and went to get it and he put it in the oven for just the right, right amount of time, remember to take it out, etc., etc., etc. So, so we have thought and we have speech. Um, finally, action. So when a kid needs more movement or needs more time or needs more attention, we have to really try to fulfill those needs. Um, in terms of kids who are energetic or sensory um, or just difficult in whichever way, movement can be very, very therapeutic. So I've just come up with a whole bunch of ideas that um, people might want to use. Um, Trampolining, you can have an indoor one, you can have an outdoor one. Trying to get a kid swimming who needs to move. Swimming is just amazing. Um, it gets all the energy and the frustration out and really calms the whole system down. Climbing trees, climbing is great. It, it also requires planning, mm. and so they have to slow them, they have to slow down. Um, swings, and you can have an indoor swing, you can have a punch bank hanging down from a hook, like I have at home, um, skipping and biking. Some kids like doing exercise videos. and Often you need to do it with them, though. Sometimes they won't want to do it. There'll be resistance. Sometimes, as I had with one of my children, when a kid really, really needs something, they actually resist it because I don't even understand it fully. But there's some kind of block taking them to that place that they need to get to. And sometimes if you as a parent can engage it and do it with them, or with other kids as well, then it can make it. It can make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, you can wrap a child up. There are all these kind of stretchy blankets. You can wrap them up in tightly and squash them. You can play pillow fights. You can do the sandwich game. You have two cushions. You put the child underneath. You in, in between them and you sit on them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then there are other kinds of toys that can absorb a child. So, I was like toys that occupy each child individually. Um, for example, um, Geomag is a type of like balls and magnets that you connect together yes. and can build structures. It's amazing. It's expensive, but it's an amazing toy. Um, marble runs, we found so many kids love. Um, kinetic sand, which they can get their hands in and it like moves in a fabulous way. Um, moon sand. I mean, there's so much out there. I'm never going to be able to provide an exhaustive list, but those are some of the ideas of some of the things that I've used. Great ideas. Really great. Challenging children, how do we self-care? How do moms self-care? Um, especially with challenging children, but I suppose all children. How do we take, what do you think? Okay, so firstly, I want to kind of explode the myth that um, people, mums, I think, often feel guilty for taking care of themselves. And, and I understand why they do, because it feels quite selfish. And you're used to caring for others, and you're used to the idea that giving is, is good, and that taking is, is bad. But in, in this world, there's a lot of stuff that isn't going to last forever. 
And we sense, we kind of sense that. And we kind of sense that, well, you know, I'm going to the gym. Well, what's the point? It doesn't help my kid. But actually, it's not true. If we're doing things in the physical world for a higher purpose, then we raise them to the higher purpose and we create something bigger than that thing. So if when I go to the gym, I'm doing it to make myself into a person who has a strength and is able to give to others, and that's why I'm doing it, then it's not self-care for the purpose of self-care. This is self-care that is smacks of altruism. There's a higher purpose going on here. And I think we have to be truthful to ourselves that whenever we take care of ourselves as mums, we are actually taking care of all those around us and we cannot afford not to take care of ourselves. Do you have any suggestions for Shabbos? Managing everything, entertaining, getting out, staying in, time for oneself. Is this even possible or a realistic expectation? So I think it's, again, like everything I say, everything's very individual. What are your circumstances? What's going on for you? What are your needs? What are your family's needs? I'll talk a bit about what, how I have sometimes managed, um, how maybe I haven't always managed, and what has helped me. So firstly, one of the things that really helps me is expectations. Um, I try to, I think it's really helpful to be able to lower your expectations and to keep them really low, especially if you have children that have that have extra needs, then Shabbos is a really difficult time because yeah. you can't go out and there are lots of things that you might normally do to alleviate the challenges that you're just not able to do. And then there can be a pressure of having guests and entertaining and all the rest all the rest of it. So if you keep your expectations low of what you expect of the kids and what you expect of yourself, then you're going to be less disappointed. For example, Friday night, I find, is one of the most difficult times, especially with younger children. We're all at the end of the week and we're all often really tired, but the kids are so hungry that they're kind of like all over the place and someone's trying to make kiddush and they're shouting and Da, 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 and people want them to sit down and be quiet and you can't really expect them that of them at mm. that time so if you don't expect that of them and you kind of laugh your way through it and maybe someone is trying to make them be quiet maybe it's even your husband who's trying to make them be quiet oh my gosh well you know what you can still laugh your way through it you don't have to actually you can just be okay with whatever so he's pushing them you don't have to be the one to push them okay and then you can be the one that it's okay with um so I'd say number one to lower your expectations. Um, number two, try to prepare as much as you can to alleviate all of it. So try to give your kids a snack before Shabbos. Try um, to make sure that everybody does have lunch on Friday. Um, try to try to invite guests that will engage your kids. I mean, for years we didn't have any guests except the ones who would talk to our kids, play games with them, and engage with them because otherwise I just felt. The kids are running completely riot. I have no time with them. I have no energy for them. People are complaining about their misbehavior, and I have to talk to the guests. I mean, it's mm. so frustrating. So on the other hand, people have social needs, and if we don't see our friends on Shabbos, when will we ever see them? So there is a balance to be struck, but obviously I'm just talking about what worked for me, and sometimes when kids are so, so needy, then we have to kind of suspend other things for a while until we're able to find a way of doing it. Um, and 
again, as much as you can prepare that you don't have to do on Shabbos. So if, if more things are prepared, then you'll be able to focus more on what needs to be done to make things work. Mm-hmm. Um, and having toys and games and books that work for Shabbat is also important. Some people put them away so they're Shabbat-only toys and they're more exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be helpful. Um, and I think, you know, know your limits and be, don't be afraid to say no. You don't have to say yes to family members, parents, and all. You know, you're allowed to say no. Mm. It's quite liberating. So one other thought that could be useful is on Shabbat to see if you can find a meaningful moment for yourself, even if it's literally just two minutes. Maybe it's after you lit the candles when you maybe say a prayer. By the way, that prayer does not have to be said when you light the candles. You can say it later on after everyone's gone to bed. You could just stand there and and speak to God in your own words. Or if it's just reading a few lines of a book that inspires you, something to give you just that little bit of focus um, that you don't feel that Shabbat went by and nothing happened for you at all. It's mm. very important. So you have a background in psychotherapy. Have you found this helpful with parenting and also with your teaching? So I, I did a little bit. I, I did a foundation adult counselling and a foundation course in systemic family therapy. Um, I definitely learned lots from both. Um, I would say that my value and awareness of the need for empathy, um, which I already had, but was strengthened. Um, it's really interesting, actually, when you look at the research around therapy, um, the, the factors that affect whether ther- therapy is successful, it's much, much more about empathy and the relationship than actually what techniques a therapist is using. So, um, so empathy between the therapist and the, and the client. The client. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, it's, we we all know it that that is what we want. Um, another thing is authenticity, um, which is just a core value in therapy, um, and not you know having the self awareness to know when you're being authentic and when you're not, and acknowledging that, dealing with it, etc. Um, and also the idea that there are so many different influences on a person, so many different ideas around, and there's so many different perspectives, and accepting the uniqueness and value of every person's perspective, every child's perspective, and that there's not usually one right way of dealing with anything. There are many, many different ways. So how does your teaching background impact on your parenting? Um, I learned a few tricks. For example, um, it's important to have high expectations. Um, but realistic ones, and how teachers can often fake a confidence in what they're doing, um, which can carry off really, really nicely. So, for example, you know, in parenting, you can expect and assume that children are going to listen, which can be helpful. Um, teachers are very much encouraged nowadays to highlight the positive and to use incentives. Um, and another thing that teachers often do is training children to do things um, when it's easy in order that when things are more difficult, they just do it because they're trained. Um, and lastly, you see this so often, you know, all the videos about the inner city teachers who conquered the kids in school. How did they do it? The most successful teachers are always the ones that the kids love. Mm. And the kids will, the students will emulate them whether or not they're actually there. They just want to be like them. And that is really our goal as parents. 
That's so true. What do you mean by fake confidence? I mean, fake confidence in the way you parent, like I'm a brilliant parent. <laughs> Is that more mm-hmm. confidence in what you're saying or oh. trying to achieve? Is that what you mean? Um, I think what I'm thinking about in teaching is the idea that you know there's so many more students than there are teachers that in theory if the kids wanted to sit down and throw tomatoes at the teacher there's nothing the teacher could actually do mm-hmm. but if they have a presence and they carry themselves in a certain way and they speak in a certain way then they kind of command respect and parents should command respect from their children and sometimes we have to fake it at the beginning and it can become real so there's two ways of doing this it's you can go from in, inside to outside. You can go from outside in. So going from outside in sometimes feels not genuine. But if you're going to that place because you genuinely want to get there, then it can be genuine. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and it it actually, it's a new concept for me. Okay. As in, I don't, I don't know. Like, I never... If you behave in a confident way... I mean, yes, authority is not a new concept, but then you will become that parent, maybe. That positive yeah, thing. exactly. I don't know. That's too interesting. In terms of controlling a class, is that is that really relevant as a parent no, or not really? No, no. totally <laughs> not. That's why I brought out, wanted to bring out the idea of the relationship. And yeah, um, that the okay. most successful teachers are the ones that are teachers from love, not from authority. Mm, it's completely different. Yeah. So what's the most important advice you would give to a parent, both of a younger child and of a teenager? So it's... Difficult, really, because I would like to only give advice to people that I understand where they're coming from, who they are, what the situation is. But just a couple of general points. Um, Climb out of your own headspace and into your trials. Try to really understand how their world looks to them. Experience it from their space, not from yours or their teachers or their school or their peers. Be there for them. It will open up your mind and make you into a bigger person. And the other thing is to have an honest conversation with Hashem. Get over the weirdness and speak speak to him. Just open your mouth and just tell him it the way it is and ask for help. We're not in control. He is. I have to say that last bit of um, talking to Hashem, talking to God, I, I remember hearing it from someone else. I feel like sometimes when you are in crisis, if you have got a difficult situation, that really is kind of the only thing you can do. Because any any other kind of, and if your child is difficult or exceptionally challenging and all the parenting techniques in the whole world don't work, sometimes that does happen. You can try everything. And I don't David, that's the goal. That's why we're here. That's why we're in the struggles. That's all Hashem really wants for us. You know, that is it. That's yeah. everything. Interesting. So, what are you most proud of? Thank God, um, I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago. No one wishes for challenges, but everyone wants to grow. You can't have one without the other. Having one, having children is one of the sweetest challenges you can get. I'm proud of every time I sacrifice my own wants for the sake of my kids, and every time I exert self-control in order to protect my kids' self-esteem. But I'm also proud of when I pick myself up after I've messed up. It can be really, really tough when you're feeling low about yourself and you think, like, I just can't believe what I just said. And you actually turn around and say, you know what? It's going to be okay. And you try to keep the perspective that things can change around 
that you're not in control, that God runs a show, that whatever I do, it can still be okay because it is not me running this world and pray and ask for help and move on. So it's interesting. You're most proud of when you overcome your traits to become a, to be a good parent in, in essence. Is that what you're saying? That and also, I'm not even sure which is harder. I'm not sure whether it's harder to con- to kind of have the self-control and to be there for the child the way you want to or whether it's harder to pick yourself up after you've mucked up. I had a story a few weeks ago. You like the story. I can't remember who it was. But uh, it was about this great person who was walking with his child and his child was really misbehaving. And this child's name was Naftali, let's say. I can't remember. And... And this guy's name was, you know, Moshe. And he kept saying, Moshe, stop it. And everyone was like walking down the street seeing this great man saying, Moshe. But, and, so, and, his, and his student said to him, you, you know your child's called a different name. He goes, I wasn't talking to myself. <laughs> I was talking to myself about That's me lovely. controlling my wow. character. <laughs> I always think that when I kind of think, oh, my gosh, I'm having a moment. And then I think, oh, Joanna. It's, oh my gosh, it's you, not really my child. I mean, most of the time. Sometimes it can be your child, though. Yeah. It's good that we recognize, it's good that you recognize yourself, as in, like, that's what you're most proud of, as in, like, yourself, because, and especially the times when you're not, like, you have, you've done something wrong, and then you recognize you're moving forward, because that is quite hard to move forward. It's hugely, hugely difficult, and I think very often, People think that they failed the test. Let's say I lost my temper with my kid and I called them an idiot or something like that. And then afterwards, I think I failed, I failed, I failed. And what you don't realize actually is that another test is coming really soon. And this is the real one because that one you couldn't have passed, it was too hard for you. And actually, the next one's coming and the next one is about where you pick yourself up and move on. Do you have any te- tips for that? As in to move on? To let's say this idea, because you know, this Jewish idea of returning back, but like to not beat yourself up and to just is it about forgetting what you've just done or what is it? What is it? How do you move on? It's about it's about recognizing because I think there's a few things going on here. I think one is um, a healthy self esteem and just knowing that I am a person of value, infinite value, and that I have huge, huge potential and that God wants big things from me and not minimising oneself, which a lot of us have, have a tendency to do. Um, sometimes it can help to read things, material around that or to hear classes around that. Or sometimes people should be going to therapy. Um, you know, As part of some of my therapy courses, I went to therapy, and I'm not ashamed to say that is hugely, hugely helpful. Um, I think it's a treat, actually. I think it's a real treat to, to get that time and space and awareness. Um, but also... Um, a knowledge and a focus that my actions do not determine the outcome. We live in this physical world where we have an illusion that what I do is going to affect the future of everything, but it doesn't have to be that way. It can affect it, but it doesn't have to. And I have the ability to change things, and we can pray, and and my child has free will, and everything can turn around. I mean, in my life, I have seen miracles with people who you would never have believed would turn out to be the successes that they became. Never. And everything seemed to be against them. I mean, 
people who are abused as children and who turn out to be the most confident um, people later in life, people who had the hardest childhood and despite all odds ended up getting married and raising a family. What has been your biggest challenge? So when my children were younger and I had three children very close together, um, coping with ongoing physical exhaustion due to many, many, many broken nights over years and years and busy days, along with a lack of intellectual stimulation and very often emotional overwhelm. And I feel like you're going to ask me, so how did you cope? And I'm going to tell you, I didn't always cope. And there were many, many times that I did not cope. Um, but that can be okay as long as, you know, in the long term, you're not falling apart continuously and eventually you find ways of coming out of that and getting through that and if you can possibly say to yourself this stage will not last forever because nothing ever lasts forever Mm -hmm. Um, and one um, the words that have been very comforting to myself and other family members um, that you know it's temporary it just this will also pass. So now we're going to ask you five questions that um, we ask to everyone we interview. Um, first one is, what is your favourite book? Um, so my favourite parenting book is Raising Children to Care by Miriam Adahan. Um, I think it's out of print, but you can probably get it second hand. Um, and my favourite other book is probably Holy Woman by Sarah Rickler. Mm, I think I've got that one on my shelf. Must pick it up at some it's quite an intense book. It is it's a really intense woman. book. It's and about I think, Holocaust. Yeah, it's about a, a, a Holocaust survivor who um, devoted her life to doing chesed in whichever way she could. And one of the major things she did was raise other people's disabled children. She couldn't have children herself. Um, I'll leave you to read the book, but take the perspective. It's not that I'm going to be like that. I'm not going to be like that. The same way she overcame her challenges which were significant, huge, um, and she didn't let them define her. Her challenges didn't define her life. She moved on, and she did tremendous, tremendous things. If she can move on with that level of challenge, then perhaps I can respond to my levels of challenge. You touched upon this, but what do you do for self-care? So I love swimming. I I love natural bodies of water, um, and I love reading anything and everything I can get my hands on. What's your favourite Shabbos recipe? Um, so I like simple. I do roast chicken with loads and loads of garlic, um, a little bit of balsamic vinegar, some soy sauce and honey, and everybody goes crazy for it. Yum. Yummy. So who is your female role model? Um, so I would probably say um, Robertson Heller because of her, her honesty and... Her humour, her realism, self-awareness and wisdom. Although I don't know her on a personal level, but it all comes across in her classes and I find them tremendously inspiring. And what is your favourite quote? So, quote from Robin Leib Kellerman. Closeness in the physical world is measured in centimetres. Closeness in the spiritual world is measured by similarity. And what he means by this is that if we want to get close to God, we have to emulate him. Just as he gives, we need to give. Just as he does not get angry and waits and gives people second chances and third chances, that's how we need to behave. 
Mm, I've got to think about that. Yeah, I also have to think about that. It's very profound. I like that. If people want to do some further reading, do you have any more book suggestions that you can recommend? Sure. Um, It's definitely worth reading To Kindle Soul by Rabbi Label Lawrence Kalman and also Raising a Child with Soul by Slobby and Grace Wolf. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Rivka. If people want to find out more about your parenting courses, where can they reach you? So they can reach me as Rivka Ziedman on Facebook, or they could email me as rivk79 at hotmail.com. Brilliant. Highly recommended. Please subscribe, like, and review the podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at Women Wellness Wisdom. Thank you.